I've watched the journey go from chefs wanting to use pork and you know have it on the menus and then the consumer has come on board too because 20 years ago the average Australian person didn't eat a lot of pork they ate ham bacon but not pork whereas today in restaurants there's pork on nearly every menu it's fantastic this is the crackling I'm Anthony Hupstep there's nothing quite like the great outdoors with the sun on your back and the wind in your hair, it's not hard to realise how special it truly is down under. Judy Crow and her husband Tim run one of Australia's largest free-range pig farms, Western Plains Pork. It's here that their pigs have the freedom to forage the land, express their instinctive behaviour and live the good life. Judy, you've got Western Plains Pork. Uh, do you want to just tell us a little bit about the farm and the scale of, of what you're doing there? Well, Western Plains Pork, um, we've been here for 23 years now, or nearly 23 years, so 1997. And so it's grown and grown over the years. So we are an outdoor bread pig farm. So all the sows live outside in paddocks and all the babies are born outside. And then um, they go into eco-shelters, which are like giant igloos, um, which are all straw-based and the pigs still get to move around inside. Uh, we also do some totally free range. And I think that's one thing over the years, that's what people have said when they've been to visit. Um, they go, oh, how come your pigs are happy? And I go, oh, I thought this is what they were like. Pigs should be happy. Yeah, they are. They're pretty cool. They should be happy. They're happy. They're happy and they're curious and, um, yeah, they like to roam around and interact with each other. So, and humans, if humans uh, are present. Look, I want to uh, dive deeper into sort of what goes on on the farm because I think a lot of people aren't aware of what it takes to grow pigs and farm pigs and um, produce amazing pork. But first, like, why did, why did you get into pig farming? And when did it happen? Um, it was, so it happened in 1997 and we had been farming actually in Tasmania for quite a while, uh, sheep and cattle, crops, etc. And the property that we owned a bit of and other people did uh, was for sale and it was sold. And it was like, oh, my God, what are we going to do now? And uh, somebody who been, we'd been working with for a long time came along and said, well, there's this opportunity back in Victoria, you know, would you be interested? And it was pig farming. And so that's sort of how we got into it. And it's been fantastic. Did you know anything about pig farming really? Is it, I mean, is it vastly different to cattle? And Yeah, it is, it is different in a lot of ways. It's still similar in if you've got the ability to look at animals and see, um, to monitor them, like to understand how they're, how they are feeling, how the, you know how healthy they are, etc. I mean, that's the same with all stock, whether it be horses, cattle, sheep, pigs, you know, anything. You can see if an animal is looking pretty healthy and they've you know got good condition or they're in the right condition for what stage they are, whether they're they're um, having babies or not having babies. Um, so it's the same for all animals. So. I think Tim, my husband, who is now what he's officially called the CEO, um, 
you know, he's really good with um, stock and can understand, you know, monitor them really well. And um, so that is similar, but pigs are a lot more intense. There's a lot more work goes into um, pig farming because you have babies all the time. Like um, sheep and cattle have um, babies once a year, whereas pigs, um, they, they have piglets all year round. So there's pigs born nearly every day of the year here. Wow. So it's a lot more hands-on. Yeah, yeah. So we have amazing people. We have amazing people at work here. And I think that, you know, when I take people, biosecurity is really strict here now, but and it is with a lot of farming. But now, like say I've had Kylie and Mitch here not long ago and out in the far, out in the paddocks, the pigs just naturally come up to you and say hello. And that's got a lot to do with the people that we have working here and that work with the animals because they, if they're treated really well, they, they behave accordingly. You, it sounds like you're very hands-on. Like do you form quite a relationship with the pigs and does that, does that affect sort of what you're actually doing here because you, you're obviously producing meat for human consumption as well? Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, um, so it is very hands-on. Like people are in amongst the pigs every day. Uh, like so the babies that are born, so we have people that, just look after, they'll have a unit where they look after those particular pigs and they will attend to those pigs daily and check whether they've had their babies and, you know, record everything. So everything here is recorded. Um, so it is quite intense in the fact that people have to be here on the farm every day of the year. doesn't matter whether it's, you know, Easter, you know, which we're coming up to. So Good Friday, it doesn't matter if it's Good Friday or um, Easter Sunday, people are always here. You've got a um, program called Paddock Life Cycle, and I, I just wondered if you could take us through that to give us a, sort of an understanding of, of what goes on on the farm um, for the pigs. Yeah, so I think that um, there's a couple of things that are really important to us, and it's um, the animal welfare, of course, and the environment is really like is really important too, and so are the people. So the, this, the paddock life cycle um, that you've seen is about rotating of the paddock. So we'll have pigs in one area on the farm, say the, say the breeding stock, they'll be in a particular area and they'll be there for, say, two to three years and you have to do, we do soil testing. Um, and when you get too much of a build-up of the nutrients from the pig waste, um, you need to move to another to a fresh site. So therefore, then the so then the pigs move off that area, go to a fresh site, and in that area where the pigs have been, um, the farmer who land we probably lease land off that particular off a particular farmer, and he will then come along and he will crop behind. So he'll he'll soil test, see if he needs to add anything. Often, probably not because of what the pigs have done for the paddock and then he will crop behind, which is then a good way to utilise those um, nutrients that have left behind by the pigs. So it's like fertilising the paddock and the pigs like to they dig, they dig and they make the place look like the moon a bit because that's what they do. Um, and they've, Happy pigs. Yeah, yeah they virtually plough it up and then the farmer will crop behind and they get amazing crops out of it. So often starting with like a, a deep tap root 
uh, summer fodder crop or a lucerne crop, something like that, and then follow with um, canola, you know, uh, or wheat or barley, depending what that particular farmer wants to do. So it forms part of the whole cycle and we will not come back to that particular place for probably another six years. So it forms like a, it's about a nine-year rotation, just depending on the soil and what's going on. Wow. But it's, so you need, so that's why we lease land off a number of different properties around us um, because you need substantial amount of land so that you can rotate, the, you know, rotate the paddocks and make sure you, you respect the environment along with the pigs. Can you tell us a little about, um, you know, you're, you're saying that sort of pigs are basically almost born every single day. Can you give us the life cycle to market, like what, what they're experiencing, what they're eating, um, you know, and, and a little bit about that? So with the pigs, um, we have a really high health status on our farm. So that means Australia, Australia in general has really healthy animals, like we don't have diseases that are overseas. And one of that, for example, has been the African swine fever, which has been in China and parts of Asia in the last, started last year. Um, Anyway, we don't have that kind of thing here. So your pigs might have a little lesion on their lung, which just slows their growth down a little bit, but we fortunately don't have that here. Um, so our pigs grow relatively quickly um, just through feed and their mother's milk to start with. So when they're born, they're, tiny, they're, they're very tiny. Um, each sow she probably has around 10 piglets per litter. Um, and then after, so she feeds them for about four weeks and then those piglets weaned and they go from being very tiny to being quite substantial around, you know, seven, eight kilos, something like that. And some will be way bigger than that again, but that's an average weight. And then at four weeks of age, yeah, they're weaned and they go into the eco shelter. But we do a number of different things here on the farm. So um, we have done some tra traditionally done some suckling pigs mainly for some restaurants in in melbourne and they are they're sort of processed at weaning um then we do the a food service what sort of size are they um they dress out so we, they dress out around eight kilos seven to eight kilos eight nine kilos some get to ten kilos just depends it's just like society like humans we all grow differently we're all um <laughs> <laughs> we're a varied group and that's the same with same with pigs um and then we do some at about 13 14 weeks of age and that has been what we've sold for food service so they've been fed a bit differently um and we process them for uh food service so that's gone into restaurants mainly in victoria but um we've done supplied places into sydney and into uh queensland or townsville mainly um yeah, and just and we, then we send some to Singapore as well, um, but they are sort of that. They, so they dress out there about a fifty kilo um, carcass, and then we've done uh, like bacon sized pigs, which we sell to um, different processors that they've done various things with, and then we also then grow out some more to only. A small quantity, but it's growing or it has been growing for salt kitchen. So we do some 
um, larger, more charcuterie-style pigs, which are nearly 12 months of age, and uh, they're, they're totally free-range, and they go to um, Mick Nunn at Salt Kitchen, and he makes this amazing product out of those pigs, um, from ham to bacon to noir de jambon to capicola, etc. So, um, yeah, I, lo- I love that part. That's so cool, what he does. Yeah, it's amazing. Well, well, that's the goal, isn't it, at the end of the cycle? Yeah. Yeah, 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 absolutely. It's always it, – I think um, for me, having been in doing this selling sort of directly or involved with chefs and people that are the end user um, for about 20 years, I suppose. So when I first started, there wasn't any pork on menus – um, that's how I, I went along, it was Australian Pork Corporation in those days and I went along to the, um, to the Victorian branch and I walked in the door and I had no idea what I was doing. And I said, so why is there no pork on any menu? And they went, oh, and they said, cause chefs can't get what they want. And I said, oh, well, what do they, what, do, what, what do they want? What, why can't they get that? And so that was a whole new experience for me and just to get into that and to realise that traditionally here in Australia we'd grown for the middleman um, and he just wanted a big lean pig, which eating quality wasn't a priority because Australians obviously didn't eat a lot of pork. Um, and so to, ha- so to look at that and see how we could change or have an influence on um, chefs, I suppose, um, to, to make sure that, you know, the consumer was starting to get a good eating quality product. It's been an interesting um, journey to watch that happen and see it change. What, what was it that uh, chefs were looking for, you know, that time when, you, when they said, well, we don't produce what chefs want? Like what, what were chefs were looking for? Well, they were looking for something with a bit more fat. I mean, to, you know, and not just a giant rack they wanted something that they could actually present on a plate so and they wanted something that was consistent so to actually um so each week to grow these pigs specifically for you know specifically for this market and to select out something that could present well on a plate which had a bit more fat they were all female they were better you know better eating quality you know the pigs weren't as stressed the whole thing so I've watched the journey go from people wanting to have, chefs wanting to use pork and then being able to to select pork and and eat, you know have it on the menus and then the consumer has come on board too cuz we 20 years ago the average Australian person didn't eat a lot of pork they ate ham bacon yeah for sure but not pork whereas today in restaurants, there's pork on nearly every menu, which is fantastic. Absolutely. And there's something that you said back there that I'm just interested to pick up on that you're, ta- you're saying that the pigs were all female. Could you explain why that is? So for food service, especially like doing a fresh pork, um, to use female pigs, you are not getting any boar taint. So sometimes we get um, boar taint. And that's, I think, in. Um, our world here where the pigs are growing quite quickly just because of their health status, you're not going to get boar taint. But, 
you can get a boar taint as the pigs get older and they might get to um, a mature stage where their hormone uh, kicks in and you can get this horrible taint through the meat, which females don't have but males do. And if anyone's ever put a piece of bacon on their pan or had a roast pork or whatever and you can just smell it and it is very unattractive and not it's horrible so for food service especially we use all female pigs just really good eating quality and and that's why like even in export you cannot export um entire males to singapore or or japan or any or hong kong they have to be um female or castrated males so um but they do prefer females all right so can you just um, give us some examples of some of the issues that you face in rearing pigs that people may not be aware of and, you know, maybe some of the funny stories that you've had to endure over the last 20 years and trying to raise pigs? Yeah. Um, yeah, I think I don't – farming, where how we're farming outside, it's, there's a lot of distance from one point to the other, like we're spread over a big area one you know you're in different areas so you're minimizing your risk of disease and land rotation etc etc and um you know like this last year in victoria where we we are was really wet like it just kept raining and raining and we had we've got some pigs that we run totally free range as well and there was this like that's really challenging like it's just very hard on the guys that are guys and girls that are working out in the paddock and they are just the most amazing people and their sense of humour was fully intact. And we, uh, you know, I saw these photos that one of the, that someone had taken and, you know, there's just tractors bogged to the axle and then you've got another tractor and it's bogged, you know. (laughs) You just don't understand how wet it can get out here. We lived here for 10 years and there was no we didn't have rain the first 10 years. It was drought, you know. We were buying in water and everything. And then this year you just go, oh, we just started this whole new area of free-range pigs and the tractors were just bogged. And if you don't laugh, I tell you what, you just cry because it's such hard work. And I'm I'm so grateful to all those people that work out there. I'm sitting in my office ringing chefs and doing all that kind of thing and they're out there working and there was one girl i never forget one day she came in and you know when people are changing um their wet weather gear etc they have to bring the old set back and say look this is broken can i get a new one and this girl came back one day and she's got one gumboot in her hand and her socks on her feet and she just goes if you want the other gumboots i need a new pair of gumboots if you want the other gumboot you can go and get it it's stuck out there in the in the mud (laughs) and so she's just standing there in bare feet and just saturated i mean you've really got to have a sense of humor if you want to um work on the farm i mean today is perfect you know the weather is a little bit overcast it's not too hot it's not too cold not a lot of wind perfect and um so it's a great day to be working out there like that but it's the extremes like the heat you know we had a guy from england and because we have these automatic feeders on the farm, which Tim, in his wisdom, he was in the UK for three days and came back and he's got 
these automatic feeders that are traditionally, or they've been produced for inside pig farming. And he goes, I reckon we can adapt this to the outside. It's never been done anywhere else in the world, but I reckon we can do this. Okay, okay, Tim. So, um, so these feeders are fantastic. Like they've got, Sal has a like a, a tag in her ear and she goes in and it lets feed down according to her tag. So if you want to increase, increase her feed, she can, um, you can just change that on your, on the computer and, um, you know, you might have one that's a little bit skinnier. So you just go, right, well, she needs a bit more. So you change that. And what that also does when you feed in a group and one sow, you'll find that it's like a schoolyard. She'll be dominant. So she'll take over and she'll, she'll be eating everyone's feed. So what, what this does is allow you to give each sow the right amount of feed, um, for her, not have one eat everything and some miss out. So, um, so Tim comes back and he's gone, right, we're going to adapt this. This is going to be fantastic. So that's all great, but there's all these things in the outdoor elements that don't quite work um, like they do indoors, like the mud and the dust and the, you know, the solar panels that you've got to have on and then the batteries, they've got to make sure you've got water in them. So there's all these things. So the guy from the UK, he comes out here, Andrew, and he's fantastic. So he's out here and he's here the first day and it's like January and it's like 40 degrees. Like, you know, Victoria, we, where we are, we have the extremes. You have, you know, about zero to 45, you know, throughout the year. So Andrew comes along. I have never seen anyone get so sunburned in all my life. Like he was bright red. <laughs> and, um, we just go, Andrew, like, why why did you do that to yourself? He said, I had no idea. It was like, I get that sunburnt. I said, well, you did. So the extreme weather conditions have a lot of challenges for, you know, the pig farmer. Um, yeah, but in saying that, they're amazing animals and, um, yeah, we couldn't, like, we're so lucky. We've been so fortunate to be involved in this industry. I, if somebody had said to me that you would have done the things you've done, been the places you've been, met the people you've met by being a pig farmer, I would have laughed. But it's been incredible. You're saying sort of in, in a lot of random moments how special these pigs are. Like, What breed are you doing and what, what makes them so special um, from a farming perspective and also culinary? So we there are large white large white landrace Duroc cross. So there's a bit of like a crossbreeding. The large white and landrace are really good mothers, and they're good at producing and they're good at taking care of their babies. And then the Duroc is um, eating quality. Uh, so that produces a pig that you're breeding consistently. So you can do a consistent. Um, product and you know that they're being taken care of and it's happening all year round. Who's the cook in the house? In my house, oh my God, it's me. So what's the best way to cook the pork from your perspective? Well, if you ask my friends, they tell me I cook everything fast. So I'm always in a hurry. (laughs) (laughs) I'm always in a hurry and there's one bit of pork that comes off the pork rack and um, we, we call it rack trimming or some of the chefs have called it strap and it comes off the bones of the, um, the rack and I throw that in my oven as fast as, as hot as I can and um, 
takes me about 40 minutes and it's cooked and it's so delicious. It's like the belly, but it's even better, I reckon. <laughs> so if you ask any of my friends, they always say to me, oh, my God, she puts everything in there and she just cooks it really fast. So that's me. <laughs> I love pork, though, don't you? Like it just, they're so diverse. Oh, absolutely. So diverse. And I actually found some skin. Uh, I had some pork skin left over from a different dish that I did, and I just put it in the oven and made crackling the other day. And I broke it up like biscuits, and the plan was to have it like a snack, but uh, he ate it all at once. Perfect. I think that's fantastic. Yeah. Like, <laughs> I just love it. I do too. And I, I think that's one thing. One <laughs> thing that has been amazing for me is that, like, the pork, you send out. 10 different pieces, say 10 bellies or 10 racks, and it goes out to 10 different people and they all do something different with it because of all the different um, nationalities and all the different cultures and all the people that have used pork over the years to survive on, like whether they've been a peasant farm, come from, you know, peasant farming background or whatever it might be from overseas, France, Italy, China you know, anywhere, and they all do something different with it. It's amazing. And um, and now we have that here in Australia. Who's represented your pork um, well in the restaurant scene, do you think? Do you have some examples? Um, yeah, I think um, we can't go past uh, Carlton Wine Room, John Paul Toomey. He's been amazing. And Andrew McConnell, he's been amazing. Like Ian Curley has been incredible too. Um, even to like Darren, Darren Wallace, he's at a little restaurant called Sood. Uh, Matt Merrin, he's at in Townsville um, at a restaurant called Jam Corner and Bridgewater Q. And so for Matt, I have known him since about 1999. He was one of the very first chefs I ever met and I still fly pork up to him in Townsville now. And then Nino Zakali, um, he's been amazing. Uh, and I've met, known him since 2000 or 2001. Um, and I'm sure there's many more, many, many more. But um, Nikki Rima, I was just speaking to her on the phone at Bellotta now. Um, I don't know. I feel really bad just missing What dish is she doing? And can you think of any of the dishes that they've done over time? Oh, uh, Nikki's done. Nikki's done a heap. Um, she uses the rack a lot to make, um, uh, like a cotoletta or you know, just crumbing the rack. So, and same with Ian Curley. Um, there's just heap. There's heaps of them. I feel really bad just listing a few because, you know, we've even like the flower drum using suckling pigs and. Um, and same with Il Bacaro and Cafe D'Astasio, like their their restaurants that have been around for, you know, a long time and have been really early on customers. And um, same with John Paul. He cooks the rack really well, well and so does Matt Merrin. Um, and same with Darren. So, yeah, it's amazing. I've been very, very lucky to meet these incredible people. You've listed some pretty influential and amazing uh, restaurants and chefs there. Like, how important uh, is the relationships with with these restaurants to you? Um, to me, hugely important. Um, all everyone that I 
you know, and I, that's why I mean I feel so bad only saying a few because like Annie Smithers, for example, I, she and I go a long way back too and they all do something different and I, just their feedback and their understanding of the product and what their support of what I've done has been incredible. Like that has been hugely important to me and that's why I probably still doing it and I feel so sorry for them all at this particular time, um, you know, with coronavirus. It makes it really hard, you know, to go from one day from having lots of restaurants and people working to to not, not many at all. Um, but that's why I want to keep doing this so that I can do some home delivery products so that when we get back to some normality, that we're ready to go again to be there to support them as they've supported me over the years. And, you know, that, that support is so important. You know, what, what would be your proudest moment? You know, what, what do you love about what you do? Um, I just like the relationship that you have with the, uh, that I have with the chefs and what, you know, to go into that restaurant to see them and then to be able to eat the product that you've watched go from home to the plate is incredible. Like to me, that means everything. And I think that that's had such an influence on um, the general consumer eating pork as well. I mean, those chefs are just, they're incredible what they do um, and how well they do it and the demands that, it, you know, of the kitchen is gigantic. I can't even begin to understand what they do. Um, as I said to you before, I cook everything so fast. And so my life is that way inclined. So for me to be able to go and sit there and enjoy what they do and what they do really well is fantastic. I'm so lucky. Amazing. Well, Judy, I'm very much looking forward to putting on a pair of gumboots and maybe I'll bring a spare one just in case um, and, and hanging out on the farm with you. Um, thanks so much and um, hopefully talk to you again soon. Perfect. This is The Crackling, a Deep in the Weeds production in partnership with Porkstar. I'm Anthony Huckstep. Stay tuned as we catch up with some of Australia's best chefs and pork producers to discover what makes Australian pork so special.